Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. We have Chris as always with us, but we also have back again uh, Molly, our good friend uh, from high school. Welcome, Molly. Right, twenty years we've known you at least. Thanks. Yes, um, that's true. So Molly is back <laughs> to talk about uh, our our new film this week, uh, which is The Trial of Chicago Seven the uh new netflix movie by aaron sorkin written and directed uh we'd love to say an aaron sorkin joint is that allowed or not allowed no that's Absolutely uh, not. that's not allowed it's all sorts of wrong not allowed okay so aaron sorkin <laughs> uh his brand new long gestating project uh about the infamous 1969 trial uh which was about the 1968 uh 1968 democratic convention uh, sort of, I guess you call it protest slash riot, um, the infamous moments. Uh, why did I pick this? I'm going to ask myself that question. Why did I pick this? Uh, one, <laughs> yeah, okay. because Molly wanted to be back on the show and talk about it. So that's one reason why. Uh, two, um, Aaron Sorkin is somebody who I think we all follow, right? Uh, he's just one of those guys who, you know, all the way from West Ring and before that, uh, he's just one of those guys who, if you're super into TV and you're super into writing and film, he's just somebody that attracts kind of, I don't know, film nerds, film snobs, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't say I follow him so much as I glare at him intensely from the distance. Well, I guess uh, that's what I mean, though. He's like he's just a guy that yeah. attracts attention if you're into film and I film know. writing it's, and TV writing. He's it's just, impossible not to. He's just really. always there. Uh, and so I'm always intrigued by what he does. I've never, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of what he does. Uh, he obviously there's the Aaron Sorkin style, which is the walk and talk. It's like a very specific, uh, sort of vibe, uh, and the way that, um, he sort of writes his work. Uh, the, uh, the movie that sticks out in my head is like the one that I'm really attracted to is uh, social network on uh, the script he did with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, David Fincher directing, I think that's a masterpiece uh steve it's, jobs it's hands down yeah steve jobs as well as like very well written no 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 <laughs> <laughs> molly what molly what's let's you jump in on this what's your take yeah, on aaron yeah. sorkin in general i, I am curious i, I, I like him but i don't love him it is well, that that surprised me that you say you like him even i don't yeah, know um, to be honest i feel like you're gonna you're gonna walk that back in two seconds <laughs> <laughs> right. by the end of this you will be cursing his name i'm sure um yeah aaron sorkin for me is like I, yeah it's like i can i can't ever decide how i feel about him so i was thinking about this lot like <laughs> last week and i I mean, I feel like the conclusion I've come to is sort of like a a begrudging appreciation for the skills that he does have. I mean, he's got a limited bag of tricks, right? Like, I enjoy The West Wing. I enjoy yeah. Sports Night. I enjoy American President. I enjoy Social Network. I we're, I'll, I'll even enjoy a money ball, um, <laughs> which is surprising to yeah. the rest of anybody. <laughs> but I mean, I think like he's got, I feel like he works best when he has like counterbalancing forces like a David Fincher or yeah. like on the best of the West Wing, he had like John Wells and Tommy Schlamme who like were co-exec producers who like, I feel like kind of balanced out his 
you know, more over the top impulses when it's just him. If it's like just all him all the time, what you get is like newsroom, which I think we can all agree is just like a disaster (laughs) of Sorkin just like going so far up his own butt. So I mean, but, but which, what's worse, the newsroom or Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? Oh, man, Studio, just, okay, okay. Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. No, no, no. But like really? Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip is like, is an d- enjoyable disaster piece in the way yeah. it's like Aaron Sorkin's Coke <laughs> Diaries on a network yeah. TV show. It's just like it's there's something insanely endearing about the fact that it's like it's straight up like his like it's a weird version of his life like Matthew Perry's a proxy for him and Sarah Paulson's a proxy for Kristen Chenoweth who he was dating and like all these weird it's just that's I think the weird sort of like understanding of that just makes it a, a, a weirdly contextually entertaining for me in a way that newsroom is like super just like sanctimonious most of the time right but I mean the conclusion for me is like you know what you're going to get with Sorkin, right? Yeah. He's got a certain type of talent. He's got a certain style. Like, you know, I think people get frustrated or disappointed with him when they expect something. It's like, if you, yeah. um, if you understand who he is, don't go like shame, shame on all of us. If we expect something different from him, um, <laughs> yeah. he's like, to me, you know, he's like Amy Sherman Palladino or something, right? There's like a very specific, style and like a weird comfort when he uses his skills correctly that you're like i know this is insane but i love watching gilmore girls for the 10th time like if that's your thing you know this like hyper verbal sort of like yeah whatever um the opening yeah i mean there's plenty to hate but like to me the opening of social network uh that opening scene where they're going back and forth is like to me that is the paradigm of sork and just like a yeah it's a verbal joust he loves writing dialogue and he loves writing sort of very uh, staccato dialogue. Um, but yeah, when he's left to his own devices, there's some problems that pop up. And that was sort of my fear going into this movie. It's one of the reasons why I chose this movie was this is all Sorkin. He wrote this thing. Uh, it's been in development since what, 2006, 2007. Uh, Spielberg basically approached him, which is also weird. Like, why would Spielberg come up to Sorkin and be like, hey, when I make this movie about the 1968 Democratic uh, Convention in Chicago, like, um, it just seems like a very odd combination of two people. Um, and especially Sorkin, he's not exactly, I don't know, he even says this in terms of having this meeting with Steven Spielberg. You know, he left that meeting, you know, basically saying that he's clueless about the historical facts of what happened in 1968. Uh, so <laughs> why Spielberg chose Sorkin? Why do you guys think he chose him? Is it because of that style and his ability to do like really... I don't know, tight dialogue or, uh, you know, a few good men. I mean, what do you think that it was that Spielberg saw in Sorkin to pick him for something like this? It's a tough project, super tough project. Yeah. I think, I think it says, I, I feel like people maybe overanalyze Mr. Spielberg sometimes. Yeah. I think that he was basically just seeing that Sorkin was starting to direct or had eyes on directing. Yeah. And he, you know, got famous based off of his A Few Good Men script, also, you know, infamous courtroom drama. Yeah. Mm, and he kind of just put two and two together. And I think that's, you know, largely also the reason it falls apart because, uh, you know, it's a very basic equation, but not considering the sensibilities of Sorkin's politics himself. Um, I wonder if Spielberg's even actually seen more than an episode or two of The West Wing. Uh, <laughs> but also, uh, I mean, Spielberg had probably 
you know, if this happened in 2008 or so, he probably was already working on pre, uh, you know, preliminary drafts uh, with um, uh, what's his name, the playwright for uh, Lincoln, Tony Kushner, right? Kushner, yeah. yeah. And so he's probably, you know, have two, you know, two spinning plates in the air, and he's like, I'm going to go with the more famous guy and take care of Abraham, and then let's why don't I get somebody that I think is capable like Sorkin to do this other thing um, that I think is important. I don't know. I don't think it's uh, necessarily any more complicated than that, Yeah. but it is, it is strange because, uh, because yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately my biggest, most obvious gripe with the movie is that uh, it's, it's about something that is supposed to parallel what's going on in 2020 and that was maybe serendipity right that the that the project got pushed so far yeah. back that it ended up having these kind of parallels with the uh, you know the post george floyd protests uh in america this summer but it and i think that you know for some people on a surface level they see that and they're like oh what a what perfect timing but um it really feel it really ends up unfortunately feeling largely false because there is little actual understanding of the politics that the main players in this story uh actually believed in and i mean we've t- we we briefly texted about this right uh dan and molly and we're not really going to get into maybe the politics <laughs> yeah. but i feel like it's kind of inescapable i don't know i'm yeah, curious i mean it's uh, tough. i mean when they when spielberg first brought it up with sorkin he was like let's get this out for the election that was the 2008 election and yeah. so like there's a lot of sort of pushing i think a very specific message in telling this story uh what that message is i think it's a little bit muddled when you see the movie like i, I think it's very clear like the the markers of what he's trying to promote in terms of free speech and fighting the federal government when they become oppressive but i think when you get into the details of those politics it gets very um smudged and I think it, it it sort of it just does not come through as a power as powerful as I think they wanted it to be. And they made it very clear. Uh, and, and Sorkin said this multiple times. This movie is not about 1968 or 1969. It's about today. He said that in like five different interviews. Um, mm-hmm. And he also says stuff like um, it's uh, it's not a painting. It's, it's a painting, not a photograph. And he's talking about essentially that this you know depiction of this trial of these people uh uh, on a film in this story is not supposed to be some historical record. It's supposed to be a sort of, um, I don't even know what you would call it. I mean, he calls it a painting. It's like a poem about an artistic expression of that moment. Uh, that- it's a, but the vibe I get is like TV movie of the week version. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. What, why, if he didn't want to make a history lesson, why did he start out with like a 15 minute montage of news clips? Well, let's talk about that montage. That, that The opening <laughs> of the film uh, is just an overlay of like, hey, this is what's happened in the, the recent years leading up to this. Um, right. I don't know. It's one thing he, he talks a lot about sort of, um, and he talked about this in terms of, you know, how do you create uh, a protest scene? He brings this in one, in one of the interviews. And he's like, it's done so poorly so often. And he brings up Argo as a good example of d- doing it well, where you enter, you know, you, um, you sort of take historical uh, footage and sort of intersplice uh, the actual movie. And I think, you know, in, in doing that throughout this film, it, it does send that sort of double message, right? Is Does this stand on its own, the conception of this, 
as a sort of artistic statement or as an historical document? Can it be both? Um, or is it sort of, is it so muddled that we can't tell what it is? Um, I don't know. Molly, what do you think about this? Are we sort of, are we off in the, the woods here talking about this in the hinterlands? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there's multiple things going on here. So, um, I, I imagine, so I assume you probably, so there was a, a documentary, which I think I know I saw in your notes that they actually optioned. Yeah, they did. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I, I'm assuming neither of you have seen it, but they pretty much use like that montage in the beginning. So I wonder if that was part of them optioning it. Like that's, I feel like kind of straight, like the same clips they used in parts of the documentary from yeah. 2006 or seven. Um, so I do wonder if that's like a weird part of why they optioned or where they ended up spending that money is being able to just like crib certain chunks of how they spliced, you know, I mean, public image stuff but like being able to do it just in the same way because it's almost like note for note yeah like a montage Mm. from the documentary um and then i also think that i mean it's just a lazy way right so like they don't show anything in the beginning they start right at the start of the trial so again i think that montage is just also a lazy way to like haphazardly establish some sort of pre-trial context which it just doesn't really do because there's no emotional resonance to it you just which i think undermines yeah feeling sort of connected in a different way because you see them in flashbacks kind of um throughout the throughout the movie Mm -hmm. but like the characters but you don't i don't know i feel like it was to me it was like a very like weird choice to to start the movie that way or to like establish your characters by not actually showing them doing anything they were on trial for i don't know and you have like that classic hardcore Sorkin uh, attempt at cleverness of like the characters finishing each other's se- oh, sentences and it's serving that. as juxtaposition. Oh, I no, love it. It, it made love it. <laughs> it made my my stomach hurt. That's but, the Sorkin um, that I like. <laughs> I mean, I I actually it, I, it, that's the thing is like it takes me on a journey. He does it a couple times, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I see what he's doing here. And then he just like hits it harder and harder as much as he can for like getting as many words per minute in as possible. And it, uh, I don't know. I, I get it. I, I, I know that that's what makes Sorkin Sorkin, but it also, I feel like takes me out of the moment. Whereas there's, uh, scenes throughout like the middle section of the film that really feel a lot more authentic. Um, even if they still, you know, get marred by some really winky, winky nudge, nudge things. Um, but I mean, you can't deny the fact that it's it's watchable. It's entertaining. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly so, entertaining. I mean, the cast alone is worth yes. like seeing this. Like, that's the thing. It's that like was, it's a film that is just for if you love movies and you love great acting and great writing, you're going to like this on some level uh, or get something out of it, I would say. I mean, the cast is unbelievable. Um, and I think even within the, you know, OK, they're great actors, but it, even within the film, they all kind of there's no real weak link here. I don't think. Do you guys think there's a weak link? I mean, like, I can't think Michael Keaton, maybe. <laughs> what? No. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. No. I'd, I mean, he comes in and does his job and that's it. Um, it's an extended cameo, basically. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know. I'm curious what your people's thoughts are on uh, Eddie Redmayne. I thought it was terrible. Uh, Absolutely terrible. I, <laughs> you just said that nobody. 
There's, I, I just, I had, I no weak link. classic, classic. I just like, yeah. I guess he's not, okay, here, I gotta, ref, I gotta refine my statement. He's not a bad actor. I think he's a great actor. Uh, he's good in a lot of different things. He's good in this. He's good in theory of everything. He's good in His accent is so wrong and so off that it like nah. totally takes me out of the movie so many different times. I thought Sasha Baron Cohen's attempt at like a New England Boston accent was way yeah. worse. I thought it was like, I don't know. It was way worse. I feel like that Boston accent is pretty easy if you do certain things right, like the, you know, the long A's and stuff like that. Uh, Remy did, I mean, did I wasn't, Eddie does not sound like an American. He certainly doesn't sound like Tom Hayden sounded like. Like I just don't I don't know what he was doing. I don't get it. I mean that was that's that's a central issue and we we talked about this with the same trio of us talked yeah. about this with Devil all the time, right? Is like <laughs> yeah. the, the like the the center of the film, like the main propulsion even though it's generally an ensemble, but like and it would we wouldn't weren't as many, quite as many uh British actors in this movie as there were in that one, but like that's like the central conflict is between like the, you know, the, you know, the more uh, mainstream liberalism of Hayden versus the, you know, radical revolutionary uh, style of Hoffman. And yet you have two non-American actors, one of which is known mostly for comedy and the other of which has been known mostly for like period dramas. Um yeah. And it, 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 it's just like, yeah, it, it really, that's the other aspect that took me out. Other than that, going back to your original statement, Dan, I do think that everybody else surrounding them is is great. I think that somebody makes a really good point that as I mean, there's I'm also curious your guys' thoughts on how they treated the character of Bobby Seale, uh, the co-founder of the Black Panthers um, in the movie in general. But uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen is absolutely like, uh, as somebody I read put it, acting circles around everybody every chance he's on screen. And that is... It's disappointing, but I'm still glad I got to see it that, you know, but then, I mean, that's the nature of the story, right? Is that he, you know, he gets his mistrial and then he's just excised. And then we get this one brief glimpse of a kind of a coda for him um, when, uh, for whatever reason, Hayden and the the lawyer who was never his lawyer visits him in jail, um, which was obviously fabricated for the movie to, uh, to inform him of Huey Newton's assassination even though he already knew that i don't know it's just like it, that that's the other thing is like when you have and you know that also happened with uh eddie redmayne's character at various other points in the movie when like when they go and try to you know uh, get keaton's character ramsey clark to agree to be their star witness like he's there for some reason just like leaning up against the door frame with his messenger bag and it's just like so many like details like that that take you out of what is Otherwise, a generally well acted movie. Not only I Abdul Mateen's doing great, Mark Rylance is awesome yeah, as Rylance the is great. attorney, uh, uh, Frank Langella it's as so the horrible judge. Like it's just it's 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 frustrating when a movie has so many good elements, but you constantly get distracted by the mess that is surrounding. And I think it goes back well, to what you were saying, Molly, about it. I mean, Fincher is clinical and so he, he would have caught these kinds of obvious mistakes and yeah this is only sec- sorkin's second feature but also it's like he's so self-serving that there's there's no there's no counterbalance like you mentioned uh to to keep him from doing these kinds of inane things uh that really uh, uh are a detriment to what is otherwise a well-told story yeah i mean i think a lot of 
what you're saying in terms of all the elements being there. And that's why I was excited about this one, because it's a period of history that I'm, you know, really interested in. Uh, I love Sorkin as a writer for the most part. Um, but in direction, did you guys see Molly's game? You guys saw Molly's game, right? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Molly, did you, did you see Molly's game? <laughs> yes. What are our thoughts on that? I hate, I did. I thought it was entertaining, but it was not <laughs> like a good movie. Right. Am I wrong in that? <laughs> I mean, it was, I don't know how I felt about it. It was like, it wasn't well directed. Like he's just not a great director. I think is a problem. I think the source material and I think like Jessica Chastain is great. And like, you know, there was a lot of, and like the story, the foundational material is like really entertaining. You know what I mean? It's basically kind of like a celebrity sort of tell all. I mean, like, or like, I don't know, like it's, really interesting cinematic material and i think he did okay with it but again his style is just same with this movie too like we're talking about he's just like his style for directing if he's even going to try is just better suited like a lot of his writing for the small screen yeah um Mm -hmm. again the only reason social network worked right is because he was paired with david fincher and david fincher could make a story about like a weasley little guy starting a website about boobs and like rating hot co-eds <laughs> you know what i mean and becoming a whiny little ceo like the only like not only but like david fincher had the capability with his style to elevate that to make it feel cinematic right like if mm-hmm. sorkin tried to direct that or not you know plenty of other directors that would have i think of still felt very small screeny like a lot like his other stuff does yeah, no, I, yeah. I think that's a that's a solid point. Um, you know, with a lot of money here, this was shot for what twenty four million dollars. After all the, they spent a mil, eleven million dollars. Sorry on, if I'm not allowed to say boobs on this podcast. <laughs> you are. No, it's <laughs> off the market as explicit it's, now. Um, right. They spent like. <laughs> wait, <laughs> they spent no, like eleven million dollars <laughs> on casting, producing, and the optioning of that documentary, um, Chicago Ten. Uh, so he had $24 million to work with here. He built a brand new courtroom, which I thought was really fascinating. And he goes on and on about this in one of the interviews, how he couldn't find a courtroom that he felt was cinematic enough. So they Ugh. built their own courtroom uh, so that it was super cavernous. And so like what he was trying to do there was like um, built it out of a church, right? Yeah, I think so. And like what he really wanted to sort of depict was like the federal, the big federal government sort of oppressing these people. And like even there in the basic production choices here, it's just overwrought, extremely overwrought. I mean, it's just like it's so it's just dripping. Uh, and you're sort of like, how is this how is this ever going to work with him at the helm? I don't think it ever was really going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And you sort of talk about other other choices that he made. There's some really good choices that he did, not just in the casting, but I think in sort of directing the characters and the production design. One of the things he points out is that he, you know, he did not want to lean into the 60s iconography of like hippies and stuff like that. He's like, don't do it. Sort of really focus on the story of these people sort of, you know, it's a political show trial essentially is what's happening. And it's the moment when, um, you know, a new president is coming in and sort of, um, you know, laying down the law, so to speak, and uh, punishing his political enemies out in the open. And so it is a real sort of extreme moment of sort of an anti-democratic sort of revolution happening or counter-revolution happening in the United States 
where some madman who's kind of a complete jerk gets into power and sort of wants revenge on people who don't like him. Uh, that's what it was about. Uh, a lot of it was. Uh, and I think that there's such a fascinating story there. But in Sorkin's hands, it just sort of, in a lot of ways, he accents uh, interesting aspects of that moment. You know, the characters, who they were, the yippies, their approach to to, to protesting and sort of starting a revolution and sort of the SDS route, which is was not nearly as mild as he depicted them at all. Um, and sort of he does a lot of great things here, but I don't even know, you know, going into this, do you, do you did you guys think that Sorkin was going to be successful with such a project like this? Because it it is a very hard thing to pull off overall. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, yeah, the scope of it is a problem. But I could, I mean, I could tell that with like the opening montage in Molly's game, too, with like the whole backstory about her skiing incident. Yeah. Like, I remember feeling as, as soon as that sequence was over, like, wow, he really just dove in here and does not care about like, like he, he he that's the thing is like he loves himself so much that he's going to try something huge but then i hear i see like a, a different pattern emerging with this movie um as you run through all these details of the production dan it's like he's focused so much on what not to do that he's yeah. ultimately like not committing or making any choices and i don't know if that's just like almost like a, a reversal of course uh after the failure that was molly's game because that was a bomb right yeah it didn't do all that well uh-uh. yeah Admittedly, and so best. like i i think maybe especially because he's got you know spielberg's blessing so to speak he's he's trying to do something a little more crowd pleasing and mainstream you you mentioned in our text thread how much the the movie felt like down to the the closing freeze frame like a <laughs> 90s like yeah. uh feel-good biopic yeah, right yeah. and so like he and it ends up like he's like saying, like, don't make it like a courtroom. Don't make it look like there's actually a huge crown. Don't <laughs> lead yeah. it, lean into the iconography. And so, like, you end up feeling with a lot of like nothingness. And that was the other thing that kind of bugged me is like, and, and maybe there's like uh, some uh, residual attempts at aping both Spielberg and Fincher. But like, he's trying to do like the muted color palette thing. Mm-hmm. And like, for a movie about like radical revolutionaries on trial for their political beliefs, like that's the last time you want to be muted about anything. I'd imagine in my point of view, Well, I think that Sorkin's muted about the actual politics. Like, I don't think Sorkin really understands any of the political movement that was going on back then. I mean, clearly if, if Spielberg comes to you in 2006, do you have no idea about (laughs) this? Not maybe not the trial, but like what was going on? Like you kind of have to have your head, buried in sand like obviously i don't know his life has been a child when this is going on um but yeah i just don't think i think one of the things that stood out for me was that he's trying to paint a painting about something he doesn't really understand and like it looks like well done and it's technically pretty sound but it it is like you're saying it's like kind of lifeless like there's just not Mm -hmm. that beating heart to the center of it um but the way, you know, we're, we're, I think we're all pretty critical of the film. Uh, I think there's certainly things that are, that are, that are good about it, but that's not the common perception at all. We are way in the minority uh, in terms of how this film is being received. I mean, even before it was released, it went through a huge bidding war. Um, you know, Paramount was going to try and put it out in theaters, but because of COVID. Um, and uh, there's a great line by somebody from Paramount where they basically said, this is not the type of movie 
that we want to put in theaters when COVID is out there because the <laughs> the people who uh, believe it's a hoax and will actually show up don't want to see this movie. Uh, and so they decided to say, hey, let's put this out on streaming. Uh, and I love this. They gave Netflix, Amazon, Apple, um, Hulu 24 hours to watch the film. And then there was a bidding war. Uh, I mean, they, why, do, why do you why do you love that, Dan? I love that because it's just like uh, it's such a fascinating little <laughs> tidbit into how movies are sold. And a movie like this, where it's like there's so much hype around Sorkin's name and the people attached mm-hmm. to it, that they're not bidding on a film; they're bidding on a product. Right? It's not a piece of art at this point. It's just basically. Uh, a product like a car you would buy uh, it's you know what i mean it's just like there's something what, what so- is a movie not a product bro like I, I don't i mean i don't know if you're like i completely agree with what you're saying but i would say i think most of the time they're like bidding wars are for product yeah I, I, there's just something about this one where it was sort of like a feeding frenzy environment where it was just like they all thought that this was going to be the biggest movie ever uh, and then Netflix finally buys it for uh, essentially $56 million, which and is... this is just an accelerated version of what happens at Sundance, right? Well, so no, I'm, not I'm necessarily. Curious. Not necessarily, no, because a movie like this at Sundance wouldn't sell for more than $15 million, right? Because right, yeah. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a jam, like a, a obscene version, right? Where yeah, like a, like, a, a, only... like a movie executive did a couple lines of cocaine uh and yeah. decided to buy a film this is what happens so uh, i'm curious from from your point of view do, is this is this the way things are going now especially for some of these like mid-sized dramas that uh, uh aren't going to have a blockbuster appeal to them i think so for at least a while until i would say whenever movie theaters start to really we reopen which will probably be the end of 2021 maybe into 2022 i would say uh it'll be like this um, and you know, the Netflix is, is flopping down $56 million. How do you get that back? Right. How do you get mm-hmm. the $56 million back? Well, you have to have people to sign up. You lower your churn rate with some, with subscribers and stuff like that, but it's very hard to pinpoint that $56 million coming back into your pocket. Uh, basically it's kind of a delusional attempt to buy up as much content as possible. It's an arms race. It's a content arms mm-hmm. race is what's happening. Uh, and so that's why you get a movie like this, which isn't even in the top 10 anymore. This thing came out, what, like a, what 10 days ago, something like that, a week and some ago. Yeah, wasn't that crazy? Yeah, not in the top 10. How quickly it fell. Uh, Hubie Halloween's still in the top 10, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I find that fascinating because the business is just, it's just been flipped. It's been sort of turned over uh, in a single year or the last six months since COVID started. And you have movies like this, which are being bought for way too much money. Uh, which are not going to return in their investment whatsoever. Um, but I think the point I was initially on there is that like there is a lot of hype behind this, and I think that hype is kind of followed through with like the critical responses, right? Um, I mean, critics love this thing. Uh, it's got Molly. What do you want to say? You want to say something? But don't I mean? But again, don't you feel like part of? I, I just feel like that's part of the industry. People always overspend on stuff, and part of it is like them. Yeah, like it's it's also I would imagine also Netflix buying into like an elevation and a of like you know its brand by yeah, association definitely. with prestige and certain creators and that may pay dividends, 
you know, an award season and that adds cachet to their, you know, Netflix yeah. brand that they're even more, I mean, I feel like that, that it's not that surprising to me, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because they just announced that today that every single actor is going to be put up for a supporting actor in the Oscars. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is like a classic, I mean, that's what Sorkin does mostly is, you know, in like movie mm-hmm. stuff, it's, it's showcase act for actors. I mean, that's why actor, even when the script is kind of shitty, that's why people will like work for scale, you know, or like whatever. I mean, what I about the what, what about the female actors? Are they going to be put up for the words? Absolutely. Uh, the wait, which... undercover that he was like, I got to have a lady in here. So let me make up a female. Totally made up. Character. Did not happen. Did not happen. Yeah. Either. I mean, he also, I, like to me, his there's it's what's fascinating to me to watch what he decided to change, like yeah. from the actual, I mean, it's part of like Sorkin's humor. I feel like my, if I leave nothing here, my film trace legacy is coming on when <laughs> to just be on Netflix on overstuffed Netflix ensemble movies that I argue should never have been made. Um, because there's no justification for this movie being like, to me, if, if you watch that documentary, yeah, it's a much better production than this, they have amazing voice actors doing some like animation reenactments and like the cast is great and the use of documentary and the use of interviews and like found footage of like Abby Hoff. Like just, it's so much like a better evocative description and like the trial itself, right? Like the transcript from the trial is all public, all 20,000 pages of it. A lot of, you don't need, like Sorkin makes up dialogue and like makes up all the plot points like the ramsey clark thing is like kind of like half of it's made up um Mm -hmm. i mean it's real they did a voir dire with him but like they didn't he there wasn't that like gotcha moment it was just like he needed like a plot point when it's just like you don't necessarily need that the weird decision to like only have bobby seal gagged for like two minutes instead of two days three days yeah like the like having David Dillinger, who's like a pacifist, punch somebody in the face, which didn't happen. Yeah, yeah that he was. Called, yeah. He yelled at a, like his bail got revoked, but he yelled like at a witness who was lying about him, like some police chief, and he called him. I don't remember what it is. I think it was he called him a fucking pig and told him yeah. he was a liar. He like snapped. Then his and he bail called got uh, Schultz. He called Schultz a Nazi and a snake, and that got him. That's the moment that where he got taken into custody. Supposedly, yeah. He yeah. Um, but I mean, it was just, it's just weird what he changed. Like Fred Hampton was never at the trial. And when he, he didn't get killed, Bobby Seale was severed from the trial before he, Fred Hampton was assassinated. Yeah. Um, so like, but again, it's like a lazy way for Sorkin to like, like he needs, like he feels like he's, which again, I, it just like makes me irritated. Like <laughs> you, you just, well, no, it, I mean, you have like the raw material is there. Yeah. It's like he just manufact. he feels the need because I feel like he thinks he can do it better. Like the story here is so compelling. Yeah. Like totally. it's so interesting and like full of ridiculous stuff that's over the top. That's like beyond cinematic. It feels like you can't believe some of it. Um, and he doesn't even use that stuff. He's like, no, I can do better by like weirdly Frankensteining these things together that don't need to be Frankenstein. Like the emotional impact of like Bobby Seal being bound and gagged for three days and like continually asking for self-representation. Also, sorry, last rant was like the <laughs> thing that actually annoyed me the most was weirdly trying to make Richard Schultz like this like sympathetic oh, prosecutor. Uh. 
terrible. A weird scene in the park with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin being like, we love you, buddy. Like, that was That's the weirdest so scene ever. Bizarre. I was like, that is such a strange choice. And to have him make the motion to sever Bobby Seale's trial, which did not happen. Did not the happen. judge yeah. did that. Yeah. There's sort of like... Yeah, anyways, there's just, and there's so many other things around this case that, like, like the, all the FBI stuff, the FBI collusion with the judge. Oh, absolutely, like, yeah. Just all of these things that are just, like, fascinating, fun stories. Like, Abby Hoffman requested that Groucho Marx be a witness to talk about, <laughs> like, like a be a witness on, like, American humor and stuff, and Groucho Marx agreed, but his agent and his lawyer wouldn't let him. You know, <laughs> did you guys amazing. know that that Tom Hayden was married to Jane Fonda for 17 yes, years. Yeah. Why was that a plot point? <laughs> uh, also, that should have been in the end, the postscript. Right. That should have been right. the end. But Mary also, Jane why, why was the postscript? This is the thing that the, why was the postscript? And I don't know why he changed or just nobody fact checked this movie. Why they said Bobby seal was on trial for killing a police officer. He was on trial. The new Haven black Panther trials were for him and three other people, like two guys that were charged with <clears throat> murder and two him and Bobby Seal and somebody else who were charged with like accessory and like yeah. commit murder. And the, the two of them, Bobby and the other person were acquitted. The other two people were convicted. It was a Black Panther member who they found out was a police informant that they killed. It was not a police officer. I don't know why they said that in the movie and why they put that in the postscript. He didn't. He wasn't yeah, on top for killing yeah. a police officer. Yeah. It's really weird. There's a lot of. There's so much that he decided to. And you know, I don't know. He, like he said, it's a painting. It's not a. It's not a photo. He didn't want it to be historically pristine. Uh, he wanted Which to sort I of think get is the fine, broad but notes, I right? Stuff that he changed. Oh, I'm not defending like, it at all. Totally fine. It's not the, a doc. Yeah. Like it's fine. It's not a documentary. But like the choices that he made to change, like to me, actually, like were less interesting. Like made the right. story, yeah. made the the story one, less impactful and interesting than thing, other choices he could have made. And it's also, I mean, it, it, you're. I mean, I don't think he ever realized how much he was playing with fire with this moment in history yeah. and the number of historical figures compared to like other movies that were based on a true story that he wrote, like the social network, which, you know, had a very specific uh, goal of uh, having us somehow both sympathize and hate its central character and basically everybody else that surrounds him as well as Moneyball, which is basically a movie filled with good characters and other, you know, people with problems but still genuinely we are curious about if not you know wholly interested in but he it, it, i like the quote you have here in our notes dan from the jacobin write-up on uh, oh, yeah. the movie which is i think ultimately sorkin's uh achilles heel is that uh it says here the problem is that sorkin's middle brow moralism demands that he divide the world into clearly good people and clearly bad people it works for social network because they're clearly bad people it works for moneyball because they're clearly good people but it does not work here because there's so much moral grayness that this is not the guy to deal with that yeah and that's actually one of the points i don't know why i picked this out as a detail that he changed um but so there's a moment where i think one of the you're 100 right and one of the things he really does is sort of smooth out the radicalness of these people um mm -hmm. that are involved like a lot of these people are actual revolutionaries like they're ca they're calling for armed revolution in the united states uh some of them are involved with communists i'm gonna push back on that a little bit but continue okay so some of them you know <laughs> 
there there's a radicalness and a drive towards violence with some of them right um there's a moment there's a moment number one a lot of them weren't for the troops right they weren't protesting the war because of the draft they were protesting the war because they thought it was an imperialist aggression uh against you know um people that they were uh, well, that was one of the most egregious made up things in the movie, right? Is the climactic ending with the reading off of the names of the well, dead. And- yeah, I mean, that part of it. But like, I guess the one moment that stood out to me was that there's this kind of subplot of these frat boys trying to attack this oh, woman yeah. in the protest. That was already also well, in reality, she was carrying a North <laughs> Vietnamese flag. She wasn't carrying an American flag. Right. So like that sort of moment where you're like, no, they were actually supporting the North Vietnamese in that moment. Like not the U.S. troops, not the. You had to get some ladies in there, don't you see? And then yeah. and then he makes up the rape scene in the middle of the assault in Grant Park. And you're like, just that whole thing is just exactly what you're saying. Like nobody here is exactly a pristine or perfect hero. There's a lot of gray area to this. Uh, and I think when he's when he really sort of removes that um, jaggedness of the truth, it really creates a fluffy film. Um, well, and I'm, maybe this is what you, uh, you sounded your alarm for, Molly. But I think there is a good case to be made that these are good people doing things for a good reason. They're just doing it in ways that makes a lot of people uncomfortable or even harmed. And yeah, so what is what i mean he he just doesn't care about that though because of his politics he's so clearly he's he's a born and bred manhattan boy and so it's there's no way he's ever really going to be able to get to that level of understanding the the true perspectives and uh motives of people like abby hoffman and jerry rubin yeah I mean, I'll say again, the reading of the names of the killed Vietnamese soldiers actually, or the killed American soldiers actually happened. Yeah, it happened. At, at uh, Dellinger. Hap- yeah, Dellinger no, reads the names. Right, but it's in the middle of the trial, and they all, they drape flags over the table, and they, like, it's, he completely, it's not at the end. I mean, again, all the things at the end. At the end, at their sentencing, Julius Hoffman let them all speak at their sentencing and they all like have these great every single one of them has these great statements that they make at the end of the trial and like there's just all this fodder that he could have used that would like really powerful and like actually represented like interesting things and he just like chose to not use any of it or like weirdly repurpose these like really again because that's his style these sentimental things um (coughs) i'm gonna plug here if you really want to know more about this, they put this thing that I remember watching a long time ago. They somebody like re, which I love them and I love weird DIY janky things. There's this movie from the late 80s that's called Conspiracy: The Trial of Chicago Eight, and it's I think maybe it aired on HBO at some point or like yeah, I, I don't so. remember who produced it. And oh, have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen parts of it. Yeah, I think it's HBO. Oh, what did you think? Uh, that was good. I mean, I thought it was interesting. Um, why? Why was it interesting? I mean, it's just it. It feels like I don't know. It feels more authentic than this does. This just feels I don't know, like. Uh, but authentic in what way? I mean, I don't know. Like when you're looking at an historical sort of event, there's a lot of ways you can present it, and the way that Sorkin does it here is just sort of I don't. It just doesn't feel. 
it feels like the bedtime story version of reality, if that makes sense. Like it does not uh-huh. feel like this actually happened like any of it. And like even uh-huh. especially like at the end with this sort of stirring moment where he reads off the names, I, doesn't that not feel like it's completely made up in some way? And it wasn't, right? You, you said that it wasn't made up. I mean, Tom Hayden didn't say that stuff. Uh, David Dillinger. Well, and it didn't happen at the end of the trial. I mean, that was when there was, he takes away the deliberately political nature or like the political nature of a lot of these actions, right? So like he makes Bobby Seals outburst about like, I'm, he makes it, I'm so upset that I found out Fred Hampton got murdered. One didn't happen at that point when he got gagged is like, and again, undermine the fact that it was like, he, it was always, it's like, it was just the escalation of him continually using this strategy to request representation. Again, it's like, he just like finds these weird ways because he thinks that that is like smart or something. I don't know. Or he just like finds these weird ways where he thinks he needs to manipulate you emotionally. And so like repurposing that thing instead of making it about, it was like the national remembrance, some national day of remembrance or something is when they put the flags out and read then started reading the names before like court started that day. But it's like, again, let me repurpose that moment as like Tom Hayden decides in, it was unintentional. It was sporadic and it was about him having a change of heart, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) it's funny because I've actually watched his masterclass. Thank you, Molly, for giving me your account access to it. Um, Sorkin's masterclass on writing. You need to cut that out or they're going to come for me. (laughs) They're coming for you. I've borrowed it. Uh, And he talks a lot about, you know, you know, how he writes his script and writes the story and what the golden rules are for him. And it really does stick out to me seeing this movie and hearing your criticisms and our criticisms of it, that he doesn't view characters as real people. That's one of his major um, points is that characters that you put in a script are not real people. They only live on the script and their only real purpose is to sort of, um, you know, be these sort of uh, foundations of the narrative to sort of push the plot forward. And of course, his versions of plot or his rules for plots are very dogmatic, like overcoming all this sort of stuff. And so that's why we get the Tom Hayden uh, conversion that happens, which is complete BS. and makes no sense to the historical person that was Tom Hayden at all. Um, And so I think that like there's a lot there's a lot here where it's sort of like Sorkin has a set way of doing things and he was never going to bend to sort of change to this specific political story. He was never going to do it. Um, And it just, you know, I think, I think as someone who went into this film with a lot of, I don't know, maybe sort of anxiety and sort of excitement about it. Like he kind of just dropped the ball, uh, I think for the most part, but what blows my mind about this is I think all three of us are critical of it that's not the story that's being told out there by critics. It has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 92% audience score. Uh, it's letterbox is near 80, which is considered like God tier. That's like a masterpiece. Um, IMDb less so 80, whatever. Um, we're clearly in the minority here of being critical of this film and saying it's not all that great. There's some good elements to it, but you know, everybody else for the most part is saying that they love it. What are we missing? What are we not seeing that other people are seeing? I mean, I was reading the the Mick LaSalle and uh, uh, Richard Roper reviews, which are both glowing. And I mean, those are two populist guys. And I think ultimately what we end up getting a lot of the time in these kinds of uh, horrible moments in history, not that this is 
a precedented moment by any means, but you end up with people just kind of reflexively hoping and looking for something inspiring and warm. And uh, even though it's a really thorny issue and a very ugly time in history, he does what he thinks the people want and ends it on this, you know, rousing uh, note and with this really awful maudlin score with from Daniel Pember- Pemberton, who uh, really, it just, I wish that there was a better way to have that kind of feeling and maybe it's you know getting old and jaded but i think that there's there's really no way to to do that authentically um and so he has to manufacture it and so that's where the manipulation comes from i don't know it's uh i think i'm I'm interested to hear your uh your findings about uh why perhaps the british and australian critics were more harsh i I guess i don't know because i was going through the negative (laughs) reviews and I just sort of noticed this pattern that the this and these are top critics. I'm not going to pick like any, you know, like random blogger like these write for big papers and stuff like that. And like, yeah, there's a, a there is a pattern where the British and Australian and non-American reviewers are a little bit more harsh. And I wonder why that is. I don't know. I think they have a little bit more distance here and they're outside of our political moment right now. So they can kind of see with a little more clarity, I would say. Uh, and I think often in this definitely just my opinion but i think oftentimes people especially in britain and even canada australia they pay a lot of attention to american politics and in a lot of ways are can be more educated than we are about our own sort of uh system and history in, in some ways um i don't know molly why do you think that the critics and audiences are, have really taken to this film at least the people that have sort of rated it why do you think that it is you know has such a popular sort of um viewpoint right now i mean i think people you know you're giving them what they want man it's like he followed (laughs) the recipe no i mean for really follow the recipe it's like all-star cast of dudes love that (laughs) come on guys like let's be real all-star cast of men Mm -hmm. historic based on true but like somebody has like a bingo box for like right like what is like awards (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. like it's got to be based on true events a bunch of dudes you know whatever like it's i mean he checks all the boxes and yeah again he tries to again i think people are real saps for that i mean and again this is somebody who but it's not i mean again i'm more critical because there's a specific thing i like about certain and he has a specific time and place for me and like i know too much about like the political history behind it. So it's like, I'm just like confused by his choices or the way he represents stuff. And so I don't think people have a very specific relationship to this history. I'm assuming who are reviewing this. And so they're just coming at like, wow, this must be, you know, they're just able to like sort of viscerally attach to whatever manufactured like sentimentality and sanctimoniousness that, you know, Sorkin is able to cultivate. So, and I think that's appealing, right? Of like imagining, that's what he plays to. That's what Westing was all about. It's imagining this sort of, and creating this world where there is clearly like good and bad, that there is, that like the system itself is functional and good. It's only sort of mucked up by, you know, the occasional kind of whatever bad actors. But yeah, I mean, I think people, this is exact. I'm not surprised at all. That's why I'm saying, like, I'm not fooled. I'm not mad at Aaron Sorkin. Like, fool me <laughs> once, 
shame on <laughs> you. Fool me 8,000 times, shame on me. Like, I wasn't expecting something different from him. <laughs> what surprises me is the letterbox score, which is like a 76 is very, very high. And that is a specific group of people that maybe excuse probably a little bit younger, but I, you know, they're film, film nerds, film snobs, art film people. And they've really taken to this too. And I was like, don't they see through like the maudlin, like, uh, layering to this frosting, if you will. I mean, it's just so saccharine in a lot of different ways that I just can't see the more art film people getting behind this, but apparently they have. And art critics are mostly art film people for the most part too. And they love it. Um, so that's the part that I, I don't know. For me, I understand that he, he checks all the box and the Oscar bait, all that kind of stuff. But like, I just don't understand why it's like a 91% like on Rotten Tomatoes. It just blows my mind that critics are so over the moon about it. But I will note that uh, it's a 91% fresh with the actual score is 78 out of 100, which is not fantastic uh, in terms of like being a masterpiece. It's like basically most critics liked it. Not a lot of them like truly, truly loved it, uh, which is something to note. Uh, and anyway, I could talk about this movie forever, but we're already at like 52 minutes. So we got to cut this thing off. <laughs> um, and we have to hype up what's happening next week. We but do. first of all, thank you so much, Molly, for joining us once again um, to talk about uh, a testosterone filled picture. Um, you are very welcome. And do not cut this part out. I am putting in my full plug for the conspiracy call and the trial of Chicago 8. It's yeah. on Amazon. Somebody fucking transfer that shit from a found VHS copy. <laughs> Amazing. In the production studio, it's like there's VHS blurs and stuff in it. It's just like a set, a courtroom set with people reenacting actual scenes from the transcripts. And the cast is actually amazing. And every single one of the eight defendants, plus the two lawyers, does like floating head cameos sometimes next to the people. And they like over, it's like a literally hashed out floating head. No, it's amazing. It's so amazing. And then they have okay. like, they're all like there at the end, like talking to each other and stuff. Um, no, it's like, it's absolutely, well, I love that sort of DIY, like uh, not everything needs to be sleek kind of feel. And I feel like you would, people would also enjoy, there's actually like some really good performances. The guy who plays Bobby Seal too, I think is actually really fantastic. And the guy who plays the lawyer too. So anyways, that's my plug for if you want a VHS transfer copy of an old, <laughs> amazing like 80s uh lo-fi movie on amazon but that's, that's awesome <laughs> and then also check out the 2007 documentary which i guess this is mostly based on chicago 10 right which is great and what's the so somebody explain what's the 10 is there two more people involved so the 10, yeah so the 10 came from uh somebody had a quote at some point but the 10 is i think it was jerry rubin or something referencing the fact that it was really 10 because the two lawyers that's something he oh, I, I gotcha. the two lawyers got convicted of jail time for contempt charges at the end too so it was actually like in all 10 of them were actually ended up being kind of like victims of this this trial and had jail time um sentences. interesting yeah cool well yeah next week uh we are going to go back to an older film it is the 20th anniversary of none other than stephen freer's high fidelity starring john cusack and a whole other cast of characters uh dan and i also used to have a music podcast so we are going to <laughs> really uh have some uh interesting uh navel gazing talks uh next week on film trace 